Uh, Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, and today we get to dive into the wine industry, which is going to be a hoot because he's uh, he's a friend I've known for a long time. I know him through uh, different areas of the community and uh, one of the original wineries, which is very exciting. And we are talking about Tony Stewart, CEO of Bacchus Holdings, which we'll get into, but a lot of people know you as affiliated with Quails Gate. So welcome to the show, Tony. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate you having me here today. So you've brought in some uh, Pinot Noir. How did you know? Like, how did you know? <laughs> well, you know, it's getting a little cooler out there, and uh, our thoughts shift to red wine, and Quellsgate's uh, been uh, one of the pre- uh, premier uh, producers of Pinot Noir since 1989. So we, uh, you know, it's one of our flagships, so I thought it'd be appropriate for this uh, meeting. What I love about Pinot Noir is the fact that it, it seems like you pull out a a very nice Pinot, which you have, and everyone says, oh yeah, that, that sounds good. Like, I, I mean, is there a little bit of a, I guess, trending towards lighter wines? And uh, this just seems just more approachable. Like everybody should have a Pinot Noir in their, in their wine cellar kind of thing. Well, you're, you're right on the money. There's, there's a trend uh, moving towards more delicate wines. And uh, we saw through like the 90s and early part of 2000s that there was a real desire to kind of move to these massive big wines. And that kept going bigger and bigger for a while. Um, and now we're starting to see that as uh, wine drinkers become more knowledgeable about product and more refined in their tastes, they're, they're shifting to wines that are a little bit more delicate, a little bit more balanced. Um, they want to taste the wine, but they also want to taste the food that they're having with them. And I think of, uh, you know, some of the, you know, real big, massive wines that over the years were quite popular. Um, they're really not the best wines for food. They they tend to overpower your dishes. And um, most of the customers I talk to now are really curious about how do I get that, you know, lamb dish or that uh, uh, vegetarian dish that I'm doing to pair with this wine. And uh, we're pretty, pretty excited about uh, the movement because obviously we make a lot of Pinot Noir. <laughs> So you're happily on that bus. We yeah. are, yes, yes. And I, th- I think as boomers get a little bit older, they're also looking at wines and saying, you know, I, I find that if I have too big a wine, it's probably a little challenging for me. Um, and I like something a little bit more delicate. So, um, yeah, it's understandable. It's, uh, um, you know, Pinot's been uh, one of the great wines for centuries. And mm-hmm. uh, we're pretty happy to be part of the club. I just I keep thinking back to that movie scene in uh, Sideways when oh, yeah. when he says he doesn't want to drink any Merlot, <laughs> and he and he explains very eloquently about how the Pinot Noir grape is you know it's it's very uh, it's sensitive and and it's you know and and just beautifully written uh, obviously not his words they're written by a screenplay but it, it just seems like that really brings out the romantic side of of the wine industry and you've probably seen the movie i'm sure oh yeah you know and the beauty of that film is that everybody in the wine industry really appreciates it because it's accurate it talks about Pinot Noir. It talks about Cabernet Sauvignon. And in the end, the joke is that the final wine he drinks is Merlot. Um, but the fact of the matter is Pinot Noir is a delicate grape. It's, uh, it, um, when you look at where it can grow and where it can ripen and where it does well, what most people don't understand is how unique the Okanagan Valley is. So we're very warm, as we all know. We have very little rain, as we all know. 
But most of our, our precipitation only comes in the wintertime right now with the snow. And so we get very little rain during the grow, growing season. So that's ideal for Pinot Noir. Low humidity, another huge benefit to Pinot Noir. It's, you know, that low humidity protects the grapes, doesn't allow mildew to get in there and cause any problems. So we are kind of a very unique spot. And I mean, we, as you know, have uh, interests in California and we've uh, obviously, uh, you know, my, my brother and I have traveled uh, through other parts of the world. This is a very unique microclimate and one not to be kind of dismissed as kind of, oh yeah, new world, you know, Canadians, what can they do? It, it really is quite a unique area and it's very, very tiny in terms of total wine production. Which makes it very interesting because you're right, The uh, I never thought of it that the valley could actually be a great incubator for, for great wines and, and great selections of wines. So you're saying... This this um, topography actually helps the the wine, helps the grapes. Yeah, the Okanagan Valley. In, I mean, we've all known that it's been a fruit belt. Um, you know, it used to be called Orchard City. Uh, was the king of apples for so many years. Um, you know, it transitioned through into many other fruit trees. Um, I think what people don't understand is how unique the microclimate is here in the Okanagan the diversity of products that can be grown here and how that will define this region. Like we are just scratching the surface on what the Okanagan will become. This will become North America's leading culinary destination. Really? Now I was part of the Canadian culinary championships with uh, Mr. McWaters actually way back in the day. And uh, it it became a hotbed because I mean, we're, I was um, part of the media and, and I was getting calls from the Toronto Star and, and points beyond from all the chefs. And the chefs, along with the, the, the wineries, I mean, that just became this, this wonderful story that is, is true to the Okanagan. I mean, we became, a, it was a bright light for, for the stage of the Okanagan. And that's, that's really what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's the diversity of product that you can grow here and the um, flavor profiles that you get. So, you know, you talk to David Keane about their cherry profile. I mean, it is world, it's the leader. Um, And it's the flavor profile that we get. And that comes through in the wines, that comes through in our peaches, that comes through in our vegetables. And uh, we, we really have to start to market that. And we really have to build that in our community that when you come to Okanagan restaurants, they're really focused in on first, what can the Okanagan do? And then what can we get from the rest of Canada? So we're hearing that more and more, which is farm to table. And I think the Okanagan does it very well. Um, is it, obviously, it's tougher. We have snow on the ground and everything else. And actually, speaking of the snow, how are we doing with the old harvest? Because I know <laughs> I know it's a hectic time of the year. Uh, the snow has fallen, and, and it looks like it's going to stick. So does that create challenges for you as a, as a winery? Well, fortunately, our team got everything in yesterday. Um, I was uh, talking to a couple of colleagues in the industry, and they still have a lot of fruit out there. And had you asked me at the start of this year, oh, you know, what's the latest you've ever thought harvest would run in the Okanagan? I would have said, oh, you know, kind of the first week of November. Um, there are wineries that will probably be pulling fruit off for another 10 to 12 days. And oh. that is late. And obviously with this cold weather, that is concerning. Um, it is one of the challenges that we face as a company is how do you, uh, you know, you know climate change is having these massive uh, impacts on different things around the planet, 
Um, the Okanagan here, I mean, we had the heat wave got up to 45. We had minus 25 in the winter, you know. Um, so we had a 70-degree swing in one year. Um, what was unusual about this last week is we were kind of touching, you know, minus 2, 1 degree uh, in the daytime, but then dropping down to minus 10 at night. Um, so big swings there and early, right? November being mm-hmm. a, bit, a bit early, I thought back to when we used to wait for ice wine and there were just years where we didn't get it because we didn't get cold enough um whereas now it seems to be that we're having these these uh, unusual weather patterns so a lot of people would ask that with the harvest being the way it is is this are we talking about all varieties of wine or are we just talking about ice wine like what, what are we pulling the grapes off for Oh, well, I mean, right now it's just a matter of processing time. So it's uh, a lot of the big reds that are coming in uh, or, uh, you know, people were wanting a little bit more hang time to uh, get the ripest flavors possible given the uh, late start to spring. Um, so so right now what's coming in is still table wines. It's not uh, intended for any ice wine or dessert wine, though obviously that's coming next for some wineries. We didn't do any ice wine this year. We take it every second year, so this is one of the years we have a pass. What what is the uptake on on ice wine? Like, I mean, not just for your winery, but but across the the board. Because I mean, I've I've seen it. I have a sweet tooth. I I do like it when it gets pulled out. But I mean, it just seems like, uh, you know, it seems like a very specific taste. I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it was, you know, the, being one of the wines that we got notoriety with early on as an industry, it gain, gained a lot of popularity. It's still considered the ultimate luxury wine product that you would give to a gift as a gift. Um, what we're probably going to see in the next few years is kind of a bit of a resurgence of where ice wine fits in the meal and why you would have it. I mean, it is a great uh, accompaniment to your desserts. Um, that's where you really want to enjoy it. Um, in sparkling wines, uh, there's a bit of a, a movement on right now to get people to understand that sparkling is not just about celebration. It's, it's about having something nice uh, uh, before the meal. And uh, you mentioned Harry McWaters. He told me one time, sparkling wine is what you drink when you're thinking about what wine you want to have for dinner. <laughs> And it always stuck with me. It's actually a great, great one. People come in, you have a little glass of bubbly, and then you decide, are we having Chardonnay tonight? Are we having Pinot Noir? <laughs> so, so I think I think you'll see um, as the region emerges more, um, the wines and the products that go, and the, I mean products broader than just wine, where they fit within the meal, where they fit within the celebration. Um, when you're having family over, uh, you know, it's... You see an emergence of great uh, spirit producers here in the Okanagan. You've mm-hmm. got great craft beers. Um, you've got awesome farmers. Uh, you've got great talented chefs. I mean, it's coming together. But as we see those uh, numbers grow uh, in the uh, population, the people that are coming here are looking for that experience. And this is a great place to do it. So I'm really excited about the next 50 years for Kelowna and the Okanagan. So let's talk a bit about timelines. So you were you were talking about the fact that truly Quailsgate has been one of the original founders of the wine industry. I mean that d- does that ever hit you in the face like you ever as you pass through different elements of the wine community does do they do they look upon you as okay they're they're one of the founding fathers so to speak? 
Yeah, you know, the, the, the consumer is, uh, our, our consumer is very loyal to Quailsgate, and there, um, there's a lot of restaurants and businesses that know Quailsgate's been around for a long time, and they rely on the consistency of product and the fact that we've been uh, making wines for over 30 years. Um, I think that it's a, a bit of a surprise for my brother and my sisters and I that, you know, a lot of the family businesses that we worked with to help build the category ended up moving on and selling out to other wineries. And now, you know, the, the, the original families that started in the wine business are few and far between. So it's a little bit like, oh, my gosh, what happened? <laughs> um, but we took a real... Um, uh, we sat down, actually, Ben and Cynthia and Andrew and I, and we sat down and we talked about it because a lot of our staff were concerned about, okay, it's Quellsgate next. Are they going to be bought mm -hmm. by somebody else? And we thought it was important to answer that question. So we told to our our staff, we said, hey, look, you know, our plan is that this is a family business. It's going on to the next generation. And whether that's the right decision or not, we're, that's what we're doing. And it put a lot of people on our team at ease because it allowed them to realize that, uh, you know, we weren't going to be assimilated into another organization and that, uh, uh, you know, there was going to be that family involvement. Uh, which is important, I think, for, for teams and employees to hear that because, I mean, they're going to put their blood, sweat, and tears into into something they love. And, I mean, the wine industry does have that impassioned people that, that want to be part of something very special. So did that kind of give them, uh, I guess, more peace of mind going forward that, yeah, everything's going to be fine. And for the foreseeable future, and I mean, who knows, but, but it seems like, yeah, it seems like it's on steady ground. Yeah, we've assembled a, a remarkable team of individuals uh, with the intent of making great wine and the intent of uh, being a brand that uh, people across Canada can enjoy. Um, that doesn't mean we want to grow for the sake of growing. Uh, it doesn't mean we want to be the biggest in any category. It really just means that we believe that the Canadian wine consumer wants to be able to get a glass of Canadian wine across Canada. And in order to do that, um, we have to you know, make a certain amount of wine. Um, we need to have the right people around the table that are passionate about it, and we've done that. Um, so I think we're in a really good space that way. Um, most people don't realize that in Canada, uh, of the wine market, and it's an $8 billion wine market here in Canada. Is it? Wow. And okay. Canadian-made, 100% Canadian product is about $600 million of that. So it's a very, very small amount. Most of the wines that are consumed in this country are flying thousands of kilometers to get here, or coming by boat across oceans to get here. And it, it is um, just the nature of the fact that we have very limited amount of land uh, for viticulture. So, mm. so let's talk a bit about um, some of the things, some of the holdings, because I, I mentioned off the top, uh, Bacchus Holdings was, was the name of the company that ha has different brands. But maybe let's give, give listeners a, a bit of a broad view of of, of what kinds of, of different um, brands, I guess, that, that it falls under as far as you're concerned. Yeah, so uh, Bacchus is an acronym for the four shareholders, Ben, Anthony, Cynthia, Andrea Stewart. Um, so that's uh, where it uh, comes from. Um, we obviously operate uh, Quailsgate as our main brand, uh, but we are looking to open another uh, winery here in Kelowna. It's going to be on the Kelowna side up in South Kelowna by Crawford. 
Um, I can tell you a little bit about, more about that. Um, the other part is that we do have a small uh, operation in Sonoma where we make wines under uh, Lake Sonoma and Plume. Um, and they are uh, limited availability, but they're in the BCLS. Um, and uh, they make an awesome cab and a great Zinfandel. Mm, yeah. Okay. I, I'll have to do some research, Tony. I This is one of the hard parts of the job. Yes, yes. Well, we, uh, yeah, Quailskate's our main operation, and most of uh, what we do is here in the valley. And um, obviously this new winery that we're looking at is focused on, uh, you know, expanding that further. We've got uh, a little over 200 acres in South Kelowna that we've been working on. Um, neighbors up there, the one question I get asked all the time is, when when is the restaurant opening? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I I think it's probably one of the best patios ever in in the Okanagan is well, thank, is that Quailsgate because uh, every time every time I've sat up there, it just feels like I'm I'm in a truly special place. Well, the one thing we try to do is is make it welcoming for people, and uh, I know a lot of people have asked about our happy hour at uh, Old Vine's uh, restaurant, and uh, you know some are like, well, how can you how can you offer a glass of wine at six dollars? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is we're in some very significant inflationary pressures. And in the wintertime, it's, you know, obviously hard for us to be viable year-round because mm-hmm. we were a tourist-based business. Uh, but when the uh, season switches to winter, uh, why can't we offer a deal for our best customers that live here in the valley? They can come down and have a, you know, a nice glass of wine. They don't have to break the bank. And uh, they can have a, a few appetizers and enjoy, you know, the patio experience. You know, if they're not in uh, Mexico or <laughs> Palm Springs or wherever they might go in the winter time, that they can come by and just have a little uh, uh, outside patio experience on the inside at Quillsgate. Good on you for recognizing the fact that you know how much locals help, and I, I think. Some businesses can lose that where they don't realize that referrals and when people come to visit, you know, where do we go? And there's a lot of that engine, that horsepower that comes to a business from the locals. And and it's so nice when the light shines inward on on people living here going, hey, we, we appreciate you and we appreciate what you bring. So we want to want to give you kind of thanks. Yeah, it's um, we have a member uh, in our club uh, program and it's called Local Select. And uh, it was uh, uh, a program that was developed to allow people that are local the ability to have a lot of flexibility in their club program. Um, but it also, you know, and provides them an opportunity to be notified of, you know, hey, happy hours on, come on by, you know, and do things. Um, but it, it real, really was built around the premise of local customers really support us. How can we be, you know, more receptive and more accommodating to their needs? And, oh, yeah. Uh, um, our team really focuses on that. That's, uh, you know, I joke about there's a lot of wineries that have opened of, of recent days that are, you know, very well healed. Uh, they're, they're building very beautiful architectural buildings. Um, we, you know, we're not in that same space, so we have to rely on what we can do best, which is really provide better customer service. And we're always refining it. We know it's never perfect, and we know we need to do more. But uh, it is one of the things that we try to tell our staff is, you know, like really be appreciative of the people that come here because it's so important that they have a good experience so that they would like to come back again. So with that, with the added, and you mentioned it, with the added, uh, I guess, 
selection of wineries that have come into the Okanagan. Do you ever drive drive around and go, wow, another new one or another new one? And, you know, we still have Niramata that's that's close by. Is it an abundance philosophy? I'm just wondering about the insight of a, of a winery owner where you go, yeah, more is better for the whole region. Or is it like, you know what? I think we're, we're, we've had enough. <laughs> like we, we should probably start just limiting that. Like where, where do you sit on that, that whole? Well, it's a tough one because you can, you know, you, you know, I'll get a phone call from somebody that's got involved in something. Uh, well, you've got involved in a winery and then they're struggling and you're kind of well, like, you know, what is your business plan? How are you trying to manage through this? And you realize that they didn't really have it maybe thought out as well as they should have. Um, personally, though, I think that the way the industry has developed, where you've got Naramata and the Golden Mile and Black Sage, that you're developing kind of these roots uh, where people can go and spend a bit of time and then they can explore that. Um, the most important part for every winery is really we all have to be trying to make better wines always, right? Like you can't just kind of fool the con consumer and just make wine for the heck of it. You've got to have a passion behind it. And, you know, 95% of the producers are doing that. And we really just have to strive to always be looking uh, to make sure that customer sees value, mm -hmm. you know, that they are enjoying their experiences. They're getting, uh, you know, different types of wine. I mean, I was at a winery that's uh, doing different varieties that I would have thought are probably not the varieties to be doing, but they're like, oh, no, we're doing this. Our customers love them, you know, Tempranello, <laughs> we're doing it. <laughs> and that's great. So, uh, yeah. Well, this uh, this podcast is called Rick and Friends, and I, I want to continue to stay your friend. Otherwise, I'd have you list the 5% that you're not happy with. But <laughs> Okay, we'll be back with more uh, Tony Stewart. I just wanted to uh, to pay the bills, so to speak. Uh, do you have print needs for your business? The D6 Print Studio on Leckie Road has large format printers to service your every need. They're very good. Take it from me. Um, Cloner Now is running its annual auction right now. Find it at clonernow.com. Uh, cool stuff, good deals, kind of an auction super center without the smell. Okay, so uh, we'll be back in a moment with uh, with more Tony Stewart. Okay, back with more Tony Stewart. And and so, Tony, I know that there was a discussion about uh, accommodations and overnight experiences at Quailsgate, which makes a lot of sense because I've, I've tried to get into different places and I'm a late booker, so I'm, I'm trying to book something in June and, and like just different places in Naramata and here are all booked up. Now you, you've been trying to build something, some sort of experience around Quailsgate. Do you want to kind of explain your, your thought process and, and maybe where it's at right now? Yeah. I, I mean, we have um, a few homes on the property at Quailsgate that we uh, rent out uh, to visitors. Um, where I'm really pushing uh, on in terms of the community is that we, as as we become more of a destination, that the type of accommodation that some visitors are looking for is different than what we have right now. It's not to say that it's better or anything. It's just to say that we need to start looking at different levels of accommodation. And in order to do that, you know, you need the more intimate inns. You need the more, you know, like what Burren Owl is doing or mm -hmm. Hester Creek. I mean, they are making, um, you know, an experience of visiting the property and staying on that. Uh, the city of Kelowna put a moratorium on uh, agritourism accommodation, and that has to change. There's just no question. It is that 
you know, we're not talking about hotels or motels. We're talking about intimate property um, accommodation where you can come and spend a few days at a winery, walk the vineyard, um, you know, very, very high-end um, properties. And we, we don't really have that in abundance right now. And what we're hearing from our customers is really like coming, but we don't really find a place to stay. So they look to VRBO and they look to other places and they're struggling a bit. So it's an area where we have to take a a new uh, approach to. I'm hoping the new mayor in Kelowna will take a chance to talk to the tourism uh, people and say, how can we make this work? What were the challenges that led to where we are today? And how could we maybe start to evolve this and get it to a point where everyone in the com community is happy? So it, it must come from somewhere. Would that be more of an ALR idea or thought process? Is that why there's resistance? Because it just seems like a phenomenally good idea. I, yeah, I mean, well, ALR actually allows it. So uh, agritourism uh, accommodation is allowed under the AL, uh, ALC uh, guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a municipal uh, decision. Uh, City of West Kelowna is very receptive to it and, and talking with their uh, um, staff and council, they're very receptive to what we want to do at Quillsgate. At Quillsgate, we're a little different because we're on the lakeshore and we're looking at something that um, would help us uh, preserve the lakeshore. That's really important to our shareholders that they don't want to see the you know the Green Bay area is quite a unique ecosystem. It is. And, oh my. Um, uh, you know, so we've been looking at some very progressive ideas. Uh, my sisters uh, spent a lot of time researching different ideas, and we believe there's a concept that'll work. It'll be the first of its kind in the Okanagan, um, but it'll take some time for us to get there. So we're happy that the city of West Kelowna is receptive to it. And uh, uh, But at the South Kelowna property, we know that the South uh, area, there's not many places where you can stay. So we look to the future and we see that that's going to be a gap. It just seemed like I, I envision uh, the whole vineyard experience staying over. Like it would give you a more intimate experience with a winery, which which seems like you're trying to get them closer to the brand. And I think that's that's one of the ways to do it is to immerse yourself overnight in a place that would offer something like that. Absolutely. You know, we were in Tuscany and a friend of mine actually who just was over there went and visited the same place. And they have a, an inn right in the center of the vineyard and a little restaurant. It's the original Olive Garden, like not the Olive Garden from the United States, but it's, it was the one that they took the idea from. Oh, really and interesting. They have, uh, I think, 22 rooms at the main uh, part of the vineyard. And you're there and you get up in the morning, you see the tractors going out and you <laughs> walk out and have breakfast and things. But you're kind of right on the vineyard and then you walk down to the village and you do all these things. And it's really cool. And it's just... You know, we've, we've got to start thinking that way. Like, how do we, um, you know, like everybody knows we can't, you know, put all this stuff in and not have infrastructure. So you've got to be careful about how you do it. Mm -hmm. um, but let's develop that plan and let's look at how we can do it so that people are um, happy with the outcome. Because it seems like, you you know, you would almost have a little bit of a, a blank canvas to build something that's, you know, perhaps uh, environmentally friendly and, you know, it's LEED certified and, and there would be lots of, I, I can see how you would probably build something very sustainable like that. And again, I, I don't know all the complexities around why there's a moratorium, but, you know, again, maybe with uh, new council, new mayor, you, you just have different perspectives. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's, 
one of those areas where you start to look at um, each of your key drivers in the community. So we know there's lots of new people that are moving to Kelowna to retire. We know that high tax is a big part of our industry. We know um, agriculture is there. Um, we need to look at that tourism bubble and understand what that tourism bubble really looks like 50 years from today and then start to lay the groundwork to get to where we need to be. So give us an idea. You did mention uh, the wine industry is approximately $600 million for across Canada for Canadian-made wines. The wine industry is much bigger, of course. Um, and, and again, is there, a, is there a tax issue there that we need to possibly advocate for or lobby for? Because I know the taxation on wine is, is actually quite high, which doesn't help the industry, really. Yeah, the markup is the big one, and it's it's not, you know, everybody will say it's not a tax, it's just liquor board markup, but the challenge for a lot of producers in British Columbia is that they're very small producers, and they can't operate in the liquor board system across the country, so the, the crazy part is if you were in Quebec and you wanted to buy wines from uh, Mount Boucherie or from... Uh, Blue Mountain or smaller producers that maybe don't operate within the liquor board system, technically you can't legally order from them and ship to to you know your hometown in Quebec, which is crazy. It is and, in the same country. Yeah, yeah, and and this is something that we've been advocating for for years. The federal government has actually said absolutely it makes sense, so they've made the amendments to make it um, possible so that provinces can now bring down those trade barriers. But the liquor boards are waving the stick, saying that uh, you know, oh, well, you know, you're going to open it up, and all these, all these um, small wineries are going to start to, you know, erode our margins. The U.S. did the exact same thing, and the amount of wine that's moving that way is very small. It's small to the liquor boards; they won't even notice it. But for a small producer, let's say you're making a thousand or two thousand cases a year, it's huge because it allows you to not have to go through the liquor board system to give up. 50 to 60 percent of your margin on on the sale um, so I, I hope that we can see it come through uh, British Columbia Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia have all removed their barriers and allow for interprovincial shipping but uh, the rest of the provinces need to do the same and Ontario has said they would because they have a wine industry as well mm-hmm and I make a point every time I'm in Ontario, I go to a winery and I go, I'd like to order a case and have it shipped to my province. And they go, oh, uh, I don't think we can ship. I go, yes, you can. You can ship to British Columbia. I said, I'll take a case of your wine right now. <laughs> and they're all like, oh, yeah, oh, uh, okay, I'll have to check with my supervisor. And then they realize it. But, I mean, it's it's not that, you know, there's not that many people going to Ontario sending, you know, it's not like they're sending hundreds of thousands of cases back. We're talking, you know, a few hundred cases a year. So it's not really going to make a difference to the BC liquor distribution branch's revenue. And I think if we look at their revenue take for the last five years, you'll see that it's gone up every year. So why would you advocate for something like that? And I'm just asking the question because I'm thinking it, but... Why would you advocate for small wineries like like that? Like it, it seems like you're battling on their behalf, and you're not a small winery. Yeah, I mean, we operate within the liquor board system. Um, I advocate for it because it's a way to make them more sustainable, and we need to have uh, more small wineries and more mid-sized wineries to make the category interesting because the people that are at those wineries, um, you know, they're making 
you know, the innovative ideas happen, right? They're mm-hmm. making great wines. They're passionate people. Um, I mean, Quailsgate wasn't always the size it is today. So we started out at, uh, I think Ben won his first year, you know, a few thousand cases and was a farm gate, very quickly became an estate winery. Um, but uh, I, I, I would like to see more mid-sized producers that can sell across Canada so that the category of Canadian or most notably Okanagan VQA wine mm-hmm. has some really good representation. Good for you. Cause I mean, it just seems like an abundance theory, which is fantastic, which is the more, you know, a high tide raises all boats kind yeah, of thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, when we go to like, we sell in Quebec quite a bit and we sell in Atlantic Canada, but it's sad when you go to the uh, government stores there and you say, Oh, what Okanagan wines do you have? And they've got Quailsgate and Mission Hill. And, you know, maybe one other product from somebody else, they don't have a very good representation. And it would be nice to see that there's, you know, uh, a few other players that could come in there. But, you know, again, going back to your question of margin and tax, it's pretty hard for a winery that's making a small amount of wine to justify sending, you know, 50 cases to um, Quebec when they're not going to see... You know, they're only going to see forty percent of the revenue, so they, right. they 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 have a hard time seeing that that's worthwhile. So, so in your mind, um, what are some of the the bigger challenges faced by by small to medium and, and larger size wineries, like going forward? Because obviously, you see it from a broad based perspective, where you, you know, Quailsgate is established, but but is that one of the the bigger issues facing the wine industry for BC? Is is some of the taxation issues and and some of the interprovincial shipping transport, or is it is it broader based than that? Interprovincial shipping is is probably the big issue that we've got to uh, tackle as an industry. I don't think you're going to get around the taxation issue because even in a private system, you have so many levels of of markup that in the end it equals very close to what the government liquor stores are. Um, so I don't see that changing, and I don't you know spend time advocating that there's some you know solution there i think opening up the interprovincial borders would be a great start um i think uh for british columbia it's about expanding our our tourism uh awareness and and helping build uh more businesses that support um that you know the local tourism which will help you know support more wineries so I have a crazy idea. Well, it might might not be crazy, but um, the district down by uh, Oliver. Oh yeah. yeah. So I I love that that area and and the fact that you can walk around a circular area and and just kind of sample and see and 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 then if you want to, um, and there's a place outside of Seattle that does it too, where they've kind of as a collective come together and said, let's offer kind of tasting stations, and if you want a larger experience, you can go visit the winery. Yeah. And I think the Okanagan is is a hotbed, obviously, and it's it's a larger part of your day or weekend to visit, you know, lots of wineries. So wouldn't it be great to have like a wine collective that we could all just kind of meander between these wines and go, oh, I love that Pinot and I love this Gortz demeanor. And, and you just kind of build this experience out. Why is that not a thing yet? Like, I, I often wonder why we don't have something like that yet. Well, I, I love that um, the, the wine district there. It's a great concept. I think the people that launched it did a great job of figuring out what would work for small producers. 
and bring it together in a great concept. I think one of the things they're plagued with, though, is that the liquor licensing laws are not uh, as flexible as would um, would make that even a better place to be. So mm. we need to have provincial uh, liquor uh, laws change so that someplace like that, maybe the center is the open area where it's a licensed area and all producers can operate equally in that. And unfortunately, right now it's very segregated. So if you're at one winery consuming that wine, you're kind of having, you have to consume that wine at that licensee's location before gotcha. you can go over to the other one. So if you and I are there together and you want to have a glass of you know, ABC wine, and I mm. want to go over and have a beer. We can't actually sit in the same area. Oh, I see. So there, there are some issues that a few colleagues have brought up, and I, th- I, you know, I think the governments are very receptive to the change. It's just that, again, nobody knew we were going to be doing these type of ideas ten years ago, mm-hmm. and so now we got to look at it and say, okay, well, a cultural area where you could have a a joint licensed area might be a good idea. How do we do it? And how do we make that happen so it works better for the consumer and it works better for the manufacturer? And then maybe what you'll see is, you know, the downtown brewery district will all of a sudden have, you know, a central beer garden or something. I don't know where it's going to go, and I don't know that industry to know what they want, but I th- we have to be more progressive. So that's probably your next area. So, you, you know, provincial liquor changes. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, and then, uh, you know, the, the hard part for the industry right now is we're a high-cost producer. We've got extremely high labor costs. Um, you know, you think about how much it costs for a day's labor in Argentina or Peru or Chile versus what we pay here in the Okanagan. Uh, it's 10 to 15 times more. So how do you compete on the shelf against a wine that comes in at $15 and you're like, holy smokes, my cost is like 10 How can I get to 15 <laughs> so. No, it's it's true. I mean, uh, and, and that's that's a global global issue. But but perhaps maybe with uh, with Dr. Henry owning a piece of a winery, we can just uh, she's always amiable for that kind of stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, I honestly over the last 20 years, there's been um, a very good will on the parts of all levels of government. And I think it's just understanding why that why a piece of legislation or a policy or a zoning has to change and and thinking big picture and mm-hmm. then making it happen. So if we only had a like a brother or something in government, like just <laughs> if we just if we just knew someone. Yeah. <laughs> like wouldn't that be great if we just somehow knew someone? But, uh, you know, we can always wish. We can always wish. But I, it just seems for me that, you know, the, the more exposure to this, you know, a wonderful product, and, and obviously it, it feeds tourism and, and that kind of thing. is, And it'd be interesting to get some stats back from Tourism Kelowna on, on what, you know, a lot of people visit the Okanagan for. Because we, we have golf courses. We have this wonderful lake. We have yeah. mountains. We have skiing. But, you know, the, the touring of the wineries and, and the, the tourism buses that we see, I mean, that's got to be such a economic shot in the arm for the industry, or for, for the Okanagan, I mean. Yeah, um, we're starting to see lots of new club members joining that are new to the community and looking at it from a social aspect. Um, and so when you start to look at where our club, for us specifically, when we look at what our club business is today versus what it needs to be in five years, we realize we don't have uh, enough infrastructure 
to warrant what people are looking for. They want to enjoy the winery. They want more of that club feel. In order to do that, I need more space. Um, it's, it's one of those things where the industry will have to transform a little bit more. So there's a lot more capital investment that's needed. Um, so I know that that's going to be, uh, you know, for some of the new wineries, that's not a problem. But for a lot of the small ones, you know, building up that space and, you know, coming up with the money to, you know, expand an area is challenging. So um, that's, it's probably an area where we need to think about ways to help um, get tourism to where it needs to be. It's interesting. I had um, the uh, co-owners of Priest Creek on on the on the big show and they were just talking about and and i mentioned the romanticized thought of people moving to the okanagan and opening up their own winery and i said you know i've heard this said said before which is if you want to make a million dollars with a winery bring it with you (laughs) and they laughed and they said yeah it's 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 really a fundamentally tough industry to be in i mean and and she said if anybody actually knew everything about what you're going to go into i don't know if many people would still go ahead and and the same could be said for having children honestly but we still have them so <laughs> uh, but but there's there is a little bit of that when people come in thinking well i'm just gonna you know walk through the vineyard with a glass of wine and and i'm going to enjoy the the bounty and and it's it's a lot tougher than that i would say yeah, I think that's the, you know, the walk in the clouds idea that the wine business is going to be this magical kind of, you know, opportunity for you and your family to spend more time together and you're going to just, you know, relax and sell wine and, you know, harvest the grapes and all that's going to be magical. Um, and that is not the case. I mean, there is never a day that I go home and think I've done everything I could. I mean, you are... What you're coming home and you're like, oh my gosh, I got you know ten hours more I could have done today to get just a little bit further ahead. So I I think that um, that's unfortunately one of the misconceptions. And you see a lot of people that have made a lot of money in other businesses say, oh hey, I'm going to get into the wine business, and they're not really worried about the return. So they're just kind of trying to get into the wine business and have a winery. And so that plays into the complexity of the industry because you have players that are very much in the business and have to do at least reasonably well to be viable and then you have people that aren't don't really care yeah just like hey you know what i'm in the business um i remember when we were in california there was uh john lassiter you know the guy from uh 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 all the uh, Disney movies yes, and Pixar. Yes, he, yes. Uh, you know, and he had a winery, and I'm like, I think he's a billionaire. Like, <laughs> why is he in the wine business? And he, you know, just you know, had a property and wanted to get into it. So you're, you're that is in the industry. It's you know, you have to be prepared that there's some people that aren't in it for the same reasons as you. So a few quick questions. Uh, I'd love to get you back on the show again too, because this is just so much fun for me. But uh, Quailsgate, where does the name come from? Oh well, I, I was I've, I've had a, had the uh, opportunity to share the story a few times. Um, so Ben and uh, his wife Ruth were trying to sort out the name, and they were around the dining room table, and I think they'd come down to a few names, and Ruth said, "Quills Gate," and the comment was, "You know, well, what 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 does that mean?" And she goes, "It's just this imaginary place on the property where there's a gate and the quail are there," and. <laughs> 
you know, it stuck, and Quail's Gate's been the right name for the property, and everybody <laughs> loves it. There's lots of quail there, so uh, it is uh, a tribute to Ruth Stewart, and uh, um, yeah. So okay, next question is estate winery. Does that have any significance? Is that a like a standard or a station? Like, how do you why why is it estate? Yeah, well, you know, when we started. Um, I should say when uh, when the winery started, they um, were very adamant that there were these classes of, of licenses, so farm gate, estate, um, land based, commercial. Um, the rationale behind estate is that you grow you grow your own fruit or the majority of your own fruit, and you bottle on your estate. And so Quell's Gate is very much an estate winery. We grow ninety percent of our fruit. We bottle everything on site. Um, most of the vineyards we have are uh, managed by our own crews, so we are very much an estate winery. I don't know if it, with the consumer it holds as much um, meaning as it used to, but uh, that when you when you think of it, you know there are a lot of wineries out there that are negotiant brands. They don't own any vineyards. They just buy wines. They have people make their wines and they sell under a brand. Um, that's around the world. Um, but we are very much an estate winery. So how does Mission Hill Estate, you know, because that yeah, obviously well, it's an they do make their own wine, they do have their own grapes, but it seems a little bit different, though. Well, I mean, Mission Hill is a, a large company with a lot of different, um, um, you know, businesses within it. But on the wine side, uh, they're one of the largest growers in the valley. So they've purchased a lot of vineyards. Uh, they've been moving more and more to uh, their own fruit coming in. Um, so they've, they're very much an estate winery as well, uh, more so than, than other larger wineries. Um, I think Anthony's got a, uh, um, a similar view of the Okanagan that mm -hmm. I have in that there's not many places around the world that have the uniqueness of this area, and he invests quite significantly throughout uh, the valley in terms of, uh, uh, you know, buying vineyards and developing new properties. So, yeah. It's just great because I, I, I know that there is definitely that abundance philosophy with you both because I've had discussions with Anthony. And, mm -hmm. yeah, he's, he's very much, you know, the more the merrier and, and let's uh, build something great so that the world the world shines the light on, on us. And he says... That's why he competes at uh, at some of these awards, mm -hmm. just to get more more attention paid to the valley. I think. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I have so enjoyed this. Uh, thanks so much for coming in, Tony. Thanks for having me, Rick. Appreciate it.